Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via Twitter using our new dedicated podcast account, at EOSceneFrom, or the hashtag SceneFromAbove, and can access the podcast in a variety of ways, including via SceneFromAbove.org, the new podcast website, our own websites, Blueberry, and Apple Podcasts. Please follow our Twitter account. We are looking to reach 200 followers soon, which is absolutely amazing. And if you can, leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps new listeners find us. Oh, season three. Can you believe it? I know. It's actually amazing, isn't it? It was like yesterday where we started. Yeah. Not, not even a year yet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Season three, I was about to say, oh, we're old hands at this, but yeah, not even a year. So uh, today, the 3rd of October 2018, uh, 192 things, according to spacetrack.org, were previously at 178 things. Oh. I mean, payload, they describe it as payload. Okay. We've had satellites such as ISAT-2 and Novasar-1, which we talked briefly about, I think, was it last time? Obviously, yeah, yeah. So that went up successfully. And there's another SSTL satellite, I think, on board, that payload. So that's quite a jump. Normally we're saying, oh, it's only been two or three, but maybe we're back on track for the world record. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of something has gone up in the last uh, three weeks or four weeks. Excellent. This is good to see that things are, are getting back on track. Do you want to start with the news? Yeah. Well, I've seen a few things, actually. But one of the things that struck me was the release of the Earth Engine apps. And this came out in beta to the people who attended the Dublin Google Earth Engine user group in May, I think it was, May, June time. And basically, this was always in the plan, that you would build your Earth Engine model, and then you would share it with somebody. Okay. And this is really cool. And in a way, it's almost feels like everyone else should just go home now (laughs) (laughs) earth observations done boom we are done um this is an amazing step forward looking down the blog post you could you've got global forest change app for example and i you could share it and then anybody could consume that information we might be in this sort of point now where we've got data cubes we've got earth engine almost this funnel where there's many different scenarios and people are choosing a path. Um, I've got a couple of things that I'll mention in terms of the news. So I'm not going to get into the politics one side or the other of this, but I just think it's worth mentioning a tweet that Jonathan Amos put out that was about the UK's relationship with Europe in space if there was a no-deal Brexit. So this came out just after we released the previous podcast. We'll put a link to his tweet and the information that the UK government had released about what would happen basically to Copernicus and to things like UMETSAT, ECMWF. We'll stick that as a link and you can read it and you can read the comments and you can make your own decisions. We're not going to get into the politics, but it's it's definitely an interesting thread. I'll be sort of brief, but I've seen generally recently more announcements from various um, startups or established companies about 
investment and contracts being awarded and uh, acquisitions. So in the UK, Rosatech have just um, had some more follow-on investment. Capella Space have raised 19 million for a radar constellation. Orbital Insight have bought FeatureX. Earthcast have just signed a $25 million, I guess, Canadian dollar commercial contract to supply data to the Indian subcontinent. Lots of things have happened since we last spoke. So linked to that as well, Planet and Orbital Insight have renewed a partnership for Orbital Insight to use Planet data for all their analytics and stuff. Yeah, basically it's full steam ahead with capital investment and acquisitions, mergers and long-term contracts. Yeah. Oh, this is rapidly becoming the Jonathan Amos show. But um, again, another piece by Jonathan Amos that was on the BBC website. He needs to come on, doesn't he? It, yes. It was about the Ocean Mapping X Prize. And the prize is to try and get um, a proportion of the ocean floor map. This is a really interesting read as well. It's about how this team has needs to create a mapping system to survey a section of seabed that is 500 square kilometers in the area and 4,000 meters deep. So just think about that for a minute about the type of environment that that's going to have to go and work in yeah again go and have a read and see what it's about and see what some of the different teams are doing there's some very cool stuff all based around acoustics and sar and other types of technology well, there's a british team team tau all right go them yeah we're not biased or anything but <laughs> all the other teams are also excellent indeed <laughs> um Getting back to what we were talking about earlier, there's one thing I want to also mention is this report from NASA about space debris. And it's basically on the back of the fact that companies like SpaceX and OneWeb and I suppose Planet as well are are talking about launching thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit. But the fact that these conglomerate constellations uh, are going to make the low Earth orbit space much more difficult to navigate and potentially to manage as well um, for those that are trying to put new satellites up there. So there are currently um, 4,000 intact spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, roughly, and about 1,800 of those are operational. Apparently, SpaceX has filed applications to launch nearly 12,000 internet beaming satellites. So, I mean, that's going to be massive. And again, uh, OneWeb is is doing something similar, um, but not on the same sort of scale. And the other thing I was going to mention, and another thing, and another thing, <laughs> and I really only glanced at it. Open Cosmos, they're a company founded only a few years ago out of the UK. And yesterday they announced this co-sponsored, co-funded competition with ESA, which runs for a year. And you can basically plan and design your mission, test your payload and launch. And that all takes place within three months. Whoa. Yeah. So this is... It's bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, that's why it caught my eye. I was like, what? Uh, yeah, keep an eye on those guys. They're uh, super exciting. And this is slightly different to, to what you and me like to talk about, but I, I love to see companies like that. Yeah, this whole agility around the hardware and being able to, to get things created and ready and launched that rapidly is really interesting. Okay, so I think we should crack on with our topic because I think it's an interesting topic. So first off, I want to just thank everybody who went to at EOZineFrom 
and filled in the Twitter poll that we put out there. Thank you very much for voting. And this topic very much comes from the results of that Twitter poll. So we asked you what you would most like to hear us discuss, whether it was web developers and EO scientists, uh, EO data accessibility, LIDAR or aerial photos. And the results came in and basically 5% of you um, wanted to hear us talk about aerial photos. And I'm really glad that 5% did, did vote for that. For a large proportion of that, nobody wanted us to talk about aerial <laughs> photography. I still think there's a, that in itself requires a discussion, not now, but at some point, just, you know, is aerial photography a dying skill, basically? 15% of you wanted us to talk about LIDAR, 30% about EO data accessibility, but half of you, 50%, wanted us to talk about web developers and Earth observation scientists. So that's what we're going to talk about this episode. Cool. I voted, by the way. Does that bias it? (laughs) (laughs) So I think I'll start by trying to explain why this was even a topic and why we were interested in eventually discussing this. Mainly it's because, as if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know from what we talk about, but also you'll have seen from the the sector more widely, skill sets are changing. And the new EO is all about getting information on the web and into the hands of end users. At least that's what I think. Andrew, you might think something differently. Yeah, I agree with what you just said. Okay. Part of what drove this was I saw some interesting older blog posts from newish but relatively well-established companies where the people writing the posts were saying that they were web developers and they weren't EO scientists, but it didn't really matter because it was just data that they were using. Yeah. And that got me thinking, is like, is it just data or does it all come back to the whole notion, is spatial special? And that whole debate. So I don't know what you think about is spatial special? Uh, no. Boom, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. As we discussed on previous podcasts, I, I, I see myself more as an earth data scientist. And I'm grateful to the availability of open libraries and the connectivity of, of data that it can bring cross-domain applications so it doesn't necessarily have to be an EO thing and then there's the earth observation people traditionally going through long rigorous processes to derive information which the computer vision people are deriving in seconds to me that's quite a, a captivating thing generally speaking when you're looking at an eo person and a web person the crossover is always difficult okay when you say you think of yourself as an earth data scientist is that because you take eo data and other ancillary data and you use the two together thereby using a lot of environmental slash earth data or do you mean feature extraction that sort of thing both both okay okay absolutely i mean the the combining data is very powerful but there obviously is a market and there obviously is a value in just using the data to extract whatever that may be. Maybe it is a flood extent or buildings. Going onto the web, you know, we're talking about web developers and EO scientists. My feeling is that one of the barriers is that a web developer, I'm not a web developer, so I'm obviously biased, would say, we've got Google Maps. What's the problem? Actually, that is a good point. I've been having discussions like this for 10 years or more where people are always saying, oh, well, we don't need the satellite information because we can just 
We can just go onto Google Maps. It's there. They can get it. They can digitize. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Whereas if we would say, well, to do it properly, actually what you need to do is have some sort of feature extraction algorithm and you need to run it through these different high resolution satellite data. Oh, and you probably need to have an account on this platform in order to do it. And it'll cost you money to do it. Instantly they're going, whoa, that still sounds way too complex. So in some respects, the fact that Google Maps is so ubiquitous and because there's the API where you can drop it in behind other data sets relatively easily, they can get what they want, but it's not the right way of doing it. And that ah, there's that frustration between the way it should be done and that we can see that the way it's going in the industry and the way that majority of people just want to do stuff really quickly. It's interesting. I almost feel like we should have a, a web developer here saying whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing that there's all these APIs flying around that allow you to just do these quick visualizations. Yeah. Google is the company that's deriving most buildings from satellite data. Okay. There's a post somewhere, I think it was published last year, but what they're doing is is really astonishing. It feels like business development to me, the, the conversation that you'd have, which is if you just want to know the buildings, then just use whatever you can, basically. Yeah. But if, you, if you've got a very specific use case that says, I need to know on a month by month basis, then if you invest in the back end and then you build your own sort of service that you can consume and then you get a, a, a much more in-depth view of what's going on. Yeah. Now, what is the value of knowing that on a periodic basis versus just whatever data is there? Because the, the data that you, you might have used that's free and open or grabbed from wherever may be five years old, perhaps. Yeah. We should say really here that you're not allowed to use Google Earth data or satellite data behind that at all for commercial purposes without obviously paying or seeking permission from Google. Just because someone's put their picture or, you know, they're, they're making something or, you know, they own the copyright to that, you know, you've got to respect these um, laws. Like as we talked at the beginning, there's almost too much choice. Oh, I don't know. Even I feel kind of, I'm trying to find what the best one is that covers all my bases without discounting anything. I was quite interested by what you said about requiring a service. And I still find that so many client-based problems are project-based that it's really difficult to try and get them to think about a longer-term service about these things. Mm. And I suppose that comes down in part to the way that we have to have the conversation. We have to explain to them that being able to monitor these things in the longer term is probably better. And But with that comes cost and licensing and ownership of data, et cetera, et cetera. I think that this is a very interesting point. There's a lot of investment underpinning this idea of someone buying a subscription, but I don't want to get too sidetracked from our general topic. I'm not really a web person. There's too many different things for me to get my head around. I sort of leave that to someone else. And I think now today that's not good enough. You have to have some at least basic to intermediate skills to put a relatively simple web page together because this is the way we've got to communicate with our data. The user wants to access through the web. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you've not bought into that yet, you're fooling yourself. There is definitely a role for the EO scientists to have these sort of powered up IT skills. I think that's something that I, I feel quite passionate about is that we need to be able to say we've got skills in IT, we've got skills in being able to visualize. Data management is a huge issue, including metadata. I think that EO scientists, are we a dying breed? I, I'm not, I don't like to think that we are. Really, it's almost this idea of the, the MVP, the minimum viable product. 
and that normally equals a web page. I don't know how much people talk about portals anymore. Maybe, maybe we do, but now it's more dashboards. Yeah, you've got to get the information out of the imagery and into the, um, I was going to say, into the hands of the end user or the client, but actually it's into the eyes of... <laughs> Good cartography is, is in danger from the proliferation of dashboards. Oh, I've said it. it, it is. It's so easy to, to, <laughs> to make a bad map with your data. But it's also very easy to make some very good visualizations because there's so much data and the flexibility of the different web tools that you have. So some of the JavaScript libraries allow you to do things you could never do with traditional cartography. Before we wrap up, there's just a couple of points that I want to make. When I talk about web developers, I'm generally talking about people who are used to working in an agile way. So they develop stuff quickly and it fails fast and then they move on to the next thing. And in general, in my head, and I'm quite willing for someone to contact us through at EOSeenFrom and correct me on this, but I'm thinking they're using open source libraries to create cool and interactive websites that use geospatial data. EO scientists more generally are intent on investigating in some depth and they will look at specific topics, algorithms and data sets with a much more critical eye and will will want to try and get it right first time, that sort of thing, rather than doing this sort of fail fast type of approach. I might be wrong on this, but that, that's what I'm sort of taking as my yardstick for this discussion. And I'm just wondering whether or not that will cause a conflict to have one group of people who just want to take an API and start building stuff and then rip it down and build stuff and rip it down, and build stuff and rip it down until it's right. And another bunch of people who want to take data sets and algorithms and work on them and work on them and work on them until they are you know, the smallest margin of error that they can get. don't know if you've got an opinion on that. I think that what I try and do is I try and fail fast. Okay. I want to try as many different things as possible and get an idea on a small scale. And then the next question is how can I can it scale? I don't think it's acceptable in a project anymore to have a 40 or 50% of the project devoted to pre-processing. Yeah. And I think maybe with the release of so much analysis-ready data, or at least that's what we're promised, and particularly if they're made available through APIs, then that whole pre-processing step won't be part of the role of the project-based um, or the service-based Earth ob observation scientists. That will be happening elsewhere. Go Earth observation scientists who are employed by those organizations creating the analysis-ready data, they will be doing that job on behalf of the rest of us who just want to start getting applications done and showcasing the power of the remotely sensed data. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I don't want dis to dismiss the pre-processing step. It is important. I think we should be moving past it. The more time should be spent on trying to get to the best possible solution in the time that's available but also a bigger chunk should be on how to present and use this information once it's been derived yeah because that, that was a point that i've made in the notes here which was that with this analysis ready data so accessible through apis and things and with so many open source tools and libraries are, are out there can web developers just basically do everything that's needed on a project and eo scientists become defunct my answer to that is no, because you still need the EO scientist, the person who's interested in the physics and the geography, to 
interpret what it is that's happening to the image to explain how it needs to be processed. And then you've got an extra layer of maybe a data scientist who comes in with computational skills and a web developer who's there able to throw up um, the sort of cloud infrastructure and all the, the code that goes around that to make sure that you can then access the, the information that the EO scientist is deriving. This whole topic really excites me. And I think that those three bunches of skills, the EO scientist, the, the data scientist, and the, the web developer, they all come together. And very rarely, now and again, you might get someone who can do a bit of all of them. But I think you need each of those three skill sets and usually that will be three different people. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that if you do have this fear that the EO scientist is less required, I, I don't think that's the case. But what I do think is that the EO scientist or whoever else is involved in the process needs to be more coherent with what they're talking about. So not talk to a web developer about path and row. You're just adding more complexity to them that they don't need to understand unless they do need to understand it because they're building a path and row general or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's our job as specialists to share our knowledge in the most general way. There's always this idea of plug and play, isn't there? You just, I get this pipeline, I get this API, and boom, boom, I've got an amazing thing. If that's the case, I've never seen it. Okay, I think we should probably wrap up the conversation there. I think it's been a good conversation, and I'm glad that we've had it. It's something that really interests me at the moment with this whole explosion in new Earth observation as we've talked about. If anyone has any comments that they want to make or any feedback or anything, then um, use our Twitter account, either hashtag seen from above or the at eoseenfrom account. We'd love to hear what you have to say and think about this topic. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then drop us a line through Twitter using at eoseenfrom or our personal accounts at ajgjogger and at matt underscore andrew. Thanks very much for listening. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. That's it for now. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. And goodbye. Bye. Were you voting for aerial photos? (laughs) (laughs) No. Go alone The life is growing